One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Encuentra White. Buen recorte de Excel Brighton. Aparece Odegar. Toca de primeras para Enquete. Qué bonito el giro. ¡Golazo! Is Arsecast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning. Goodly Christmas, goodly festive period. I was worried there for a little time, Andrew, that it wouldn't be as festive and goodly as we all hoped. You were worried, weren't you? At halftime, you were worried. I was worried, not, I admit. Not for the first time this season, you sort of confided in me that I'm obviously breaking that confidence now by telling everyone on the podcast. But, but, you know, I have a bit of a bad feeling about this one. Yeah. And I can I can sort of get it. I think we can all go there in our minds, can't we? Um, but I, as I said to you afterwards, I hope your bad feelings continue right throughout the season because they're usually wrong, which well, is great. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I keep confiding in you and Arsenal keep confounding me with brilliant performances and this was actually I think you know across the course of the 90 minutes a really strong display from Arsenal and in some respects exactly what uh, we might have asked for what might have been on our Christmas list if you look at the outcome the points the the scorers the identity of the scorers I think will have allayed some if not all concerns mm. about the front line um and also, I just think the way in which we kind of found our rhythm and found our gear in this game, you know, in the course of the 90 minutes, we seem to shake off the rust of the last few weeks. And into that second half, we're playing some scintillating stuff. Yeah, I think I think we were quite dominant in that first half, even though, you know, to my mind, there was an element of rustiness about the way we were playing, it, it was just that we were half a step off at times. You know, when we're at our best this season, when we have been at our best this season, there's a sort of fluency to the way that we play. Mm. And I don't think it's unfair or being critical to say that we weren't quite there in the first half. And it's completely understandable, by the way, because we've had a 44-day break in the middle of the season. Some of the players have gone to play at a World Cup. Some of them didn't play at all in the World Cup. Um, and you lose that, those automatisms just a little bit. So I don't think it's 
um, unreasonable to suggest we were a little bit off in that first half, even though I think on the balance of play, West Ham's lead at the break was slightly fortuitous. Um, but, but I think what is most pleasing about what we saw last night was the fact that this is an Arsenal team that isn't, or isn't used to being behind. I think they said on TV that in the, uh, the, the entire season, we've only been behind for 57 minutes. Something crazy like that. Yeah, I think it's th- three times yeah. in this season. For um, a total of 57 minutes. So that's really not a lot. Now, I assume that includes the Manchester United game that we lost, yeah. right? So it was really interesting to see how we were going to respond to, you know, first half in which we had a goal disallowed, very marginally disallowed. We thought we were going to get a penalty right in injury time, but VAR, rightly enough, um rule that out because it wasn't a handball and the penalty that they got was you know it was a bit clumsy a bit um a bit rusty to to use that phrase again but also i think fairly generous towards west ham so you know when you when you take into account all the all the circumstances the fact that we've had this break the fact that we're without gabriel jesus has been a very important player and we're goal down at the break. How, how are they going to respond? What what are they going to show in the second half? And what they showed in the second half was just was outstanding. I thought I thought it was just a really brilliant performance. Like the first forty five minutes was a kind of elongated warm up, if if that makes sense. Yeah, I I agree with you that that Arsenal. I think we're really unlucky to be behind at half time. You know, West Ham offered. Very little in the game, uh, apart from the penalty incident. I'm thinking, I think there's one cross from Bowen that Ramsdale sort of palmed away. I can't think mm. of anything else. Um, and, you know, a couple of calls at the other end, you know, on another day might have gone Arsenal's way. Uh, or, you know, a couple of inches here, a couple of inches there. We might have been talking about an Arsenal lead. So I, I don't want to be too down on the first half performance because I don't think it was sort of bad, really. I just think maybe it was a little bit less sharp than we might have liked and and certainly less sharp than we produced in the second half. But on the balance of play overall, uh, we were, I thought, the much better team. We dominated the game as we've become accustomed to in the Premier League, especially at home, dominated the territory, created the better chances um, and in the end ran out pretty comfortable winners. I mean, there was no point in the second half, really, where West Ham put us under any threat. There was like, they had one shot at the start of the half with Antonio towards the near post, one shot right at the end mm. from, um, forgotten his name, Spanish midfielder. Fornals. Uh, yes, Fornals. And then in between that, you know, it was complete Arsenal dominance. So, and, and it, so it should be. I mean, West Ham have not been a good team this season. They're a long way short of... Mm what you would expect and what they were last season. I think even in the past, I was saying to uh, my athletic colleague who covers West Ham last night, even when West Ham haven't been a great side, you always expect kind of a fight against them. And I feel like Arsenal didn't really have to fight enormously. I don't think this is a, a good West Ham team at all, but Arsenal did what they needed to do. And, uh, it's a really good start and an important one because when you look at the fixtures coming up, I think dropping points last night would have been really disheartening. Yeah, well, look, 
the the start that we want to get back to, or how do you say that, um, you know, in reasonable, decent English. Sorry, I'm still uh, feeling the effects of my Christmas illness. Um, to get going again and to find some momentum and to get a win is is something that was talked about you know, uh, quite a lot mm. in the build-up to this game. And I think you're right. You know, you're sort of immediately firefighting where you go like, okay, well, that's not great. But look, we, you know, we've got a chance to to uh, to pick ourselves up and go again. But I think yeah. it just sends a different kind of a message, you know, that we have come back. We have more than deserved the three points against a West Ham team that I think you're very right to point out are lacking something in terms of their own spirit or fight or whatever it is that you would normally associate with them. Like a David Moyes team is usually pretty difficult to play against. I know we have a great record against West Ham and, and that might play into it a bit, but I think this is some way short of what David Moyes has produced with this side over the last couple of seasons. You know, when you think about where they finished, how well they've done, um, you know, I think he surprised people when he came in there again and, and did such a good job, but they're in a position now where they're just a point off the relegation zone. They've lost four in a row. I don't know how many games it is they've lost this season already. Is it 10 they've lost? Mm -hmm. You know, 10 defeats from 16 games is really, really poor. Um, and and particularly when when they went ahead and they sat back and they, they looked like they were going to just park the bus you know, I, I expected a bit more fight from them. I expected it to be more difficult for us to to break them down. But, you know, the the pressure and the quality that we have uh, told in the end and, you know, when it went 3-1, I mean, that was it. They were, they just were walking, basically, yeah. West Ham. You know, they, they knew. They on for his debut, didn't they? Premier, uh, Premier League debut for a youngster because yeah. it was such a non-contest by that point of the game. Um and, and interesting, you know, Moyes and Arteta, they were appointed, I think, pretty much within a week of each other. Mm. Uh, and they were both sort of, you know, three years anniversary. This was three years to the day, I think, since Arteta's first game. And it's quite the story, this three years, in terms of, you know, where we were and where we are now. And, uh, yeah, I, I think as well, something else to say about the game was... Arsenal overcame the kind of crushing weight of narrative. I think so many eyes were on this match with Gabriel Jesus being absent from the Premier League starting eleven for the first time. And, you know, I'm sure every journalist had their editor saying to them, you know, well, you know, we're going to look at how Arsenal do without Jesus. And mm. if they don't win, you know, there's going to be a lot of talk about that and justifiably and understandably so. So I think avoiding that for for a game at least and sort of showing that there are still players with real attacking talent in this squad, um, even though there will be tougher tests to come, was really important. So let's sort of do the first half then. William Saliba started slightly surprisingly because he only came back late last week, but at the same yeah. time, I understand the decision. He didn't really play at the World Cup. If he If he says to the manager... I'm ready to go. I want to play. You can completely understand why he was in the team. I think yeah. he's. If, if Tommy Asu had been maybe yeah. more fit, I think, or, you know, he wasn't on the bench, Tommy Asu, I think maybe a different decision would have been made. But because uh, he's the player who could come in without massively affecting the. Not massively affecting, without significantly affecting sure. the quality of the back four. I agree. Think. Agree. And I think Saliba. 
was one of the players who looked just a little bit rusty in that mm-hmm. in that first half. Um, you know, he's usually quite graceful over the ground for a big guy, and he is a big guy, but there's a sort of lightness of foot to him that, that wasn't there. He looked a bit heavy-legged, and that's, again, completely understandable. Hasn't played for, you know, six weeks, basically. Um, was away at the World Cup. There's a sort of weight that comes with that when your country gets to the final and loses. I think there's, you know, whether whether you're in the team or you weren't in the team on the day of the final, there's a disappointment either way, you know? So the goal that West Ham got, you know, I think ordinarily he deals with that ball with with some authority. He mm. He gets, you know, gets it clear or, you know, takes it down and does a double pirouette and spins into midfield. You know, there's all kinds of things he would normally do, but I think he was just slightly hesitant, then slid in to try and make a tackle that he probably shouldn't have made. How, you know, between one and ten, how generous would you say that penalty was, given that, okay, there was... A, a very slight bit of contact, but it didn't really seem to impede Jared Bowen, who kept going, who got into the box, and you know who, you know, potentially could have got a shot away. Um, how do you how do you view the generosity of that penalty? I think it's I think it's soft, but it's one of those that when you're looking at the replay and there is a a tiny bit of contact, mm. that means it's not going to be overturned. You know, and Saliba almost seems to kind of realise he's dived in as he dives in and kind of withdraw his legs and they just clip Bowen. Um, Yeah, I think it's clumsy. I still think it's a soft award. And if it hadn't been given, uh, I would have been very interested to see if VAR had, you know, asked the referee to look at it again. Um, But it's kind of one of those where... There's contact made, and unfortunately, in this world of video replay, I feel like contact constitutes a foul. Mm. And I do think there is a, a worthwhile discussion to be had about the difference and the distinction between contact and a foul. Um, but I think in the current climate, you know, that is going to go against you. Yeah, I mean, we had a good question here, which I might just throw in now. It came uh, on the Discord from The Land, who said, why is the threshold for what is a foul inside the box so much higher for physical play, grappling, etc., but so much lower for brushing a boot? Like, I, you know, that's not yeah. a free kick anywhere else on the pitch. It just absolutely isn't. And, you know, I'm looking at the replay, the sort of front-on replay, from behind you can see that there is, you know, that very slight amount of contact. In real time, it's very difficult to see, you know, how Bowen was impeded in any way by that. And I think if that had happened in midfield, with the get it or let it flow edict, the referee's never going to stop a game for that. He's just gonna he's just gonna play on, you know. So it's a weird one, isn't it? That that something that isn't a foul and will never be a foul in midfield or anywhere else on the pitch is awarded as a penalty, which is basically the harshest punishment you can mete out to a team, you know, in 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 that sense of of the way a game uh, develops, you know. Yeah, I agree, and it's a strange, curious thing about football. And the the outcome is more goals. So maybe, you know, as fans, uh, generally, in, as neutrals, we probably shouldn't complain and maybe that's part of the design but it does seem very odd that if William Saliba does that a few yards up the pitch it, it may well be treated 
very differently. And that goes yeah. for a lot of types of challenges. Just on the issue about his rustiness, I do think it's worth um, mentioning uh, Pep Guardiola's comments about Calvin Phillips, which I, I know were quite uh, damaging potentially to that player, but he said effectively that Phillips returned from the World Cup overweight. Um, but I do wonder... I think there's an interesting something to keep an eye on will be the players who went to the World Cup but didn't play many games. Mm. What sort of conditioning will they return with? Will it be up to the standards of regular Premier League football? Probably not, you know. And yeah, maybe, but I, I don't I don't know what the, the entire situation with Calvin Phillips is, but you know, for for a player to come back in the kind of condition which would make his manager you know, say that about him publicly, I suspect that might be more an individual issue than something collective, something that many players are going to experience, you know? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I don't know enough about that player to say, but mm. uh, I, I agree that Saliba looked like a guy who, A, hadn't played a lot of football very recently, and B, had been slightly uh, hurried back into the first season. Isn't it kind of mad, though? That that you know that, that games that, make that much difference. Yes, you know that yeah. that um, obviously they play and train every day. Um, they're professional footballers. This is what they do for a living. I wonder at times do we underestimate the importance of rhythm and and fluency and match fitness and and playing on a consistent regular basis for a player to operate at their very best. You know, and you think maybe then about some of the things that Mikel Arteta said this season about how he needs these guys to play every three or four days and get used to playing every three or four days and get used to playing at a high level every three or four days. And, you know, uh, there's another school of thought that will go, oh, no, we need more depth. We can't ask that of these players. But maybe that is how you operate at the very highest level, is being able to do what Mikel Arteta wants these guys to be able to do. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah. not like you just sort of uh, uh, took six weeks off, lay around on the beach, eating fish and chips and drinking pints of bitter. You know, it's not like the old days when they go on their summer holidays and they come back and have to run all the weight off. You know, he was at a World Cup. He was training. He was in a high-performance environment. But without playing the games, you can see the impact that it had on him in that first half in particular. Well, I think, I suspect it just comes from the fact that they're very different programs like if you are not playing games then you are on the training pitch probably every day you know and even when there's a match um you know you probably do a warm down and then you probably train the next morning while mm. other players might be on the massage table whereas when you're in the rhythm of playing games particularly in this season you aren't training all that much like if you're playing every three or four days and then two of those days in the week are recovery days, your actual training time is pretty minimal yeah. and it's all focused around the games. So if you look at the kind of peaks and troughs physically of, of that week or that month, it's a very different schedule. Uh, and I think what we do see is that players who, as you suggest, get that rhythm of playing games, they find a slightly different gear. And I'm sure Saliba will, will get there. Well, hopefully we'll sure. get there in Weeks. So look, second half then, 1-0 down at the break and 
I can't remember which player I, I saw talking about this afterwards where they were talking about the halftime team talk and he just said, well, we stayed calm. Uh, might yeah, have I think been it was, Odegaard. was it Odegaard? Okay, well, um, maybe they all said it. I don't they, they might have done. I mean, if that's what it was, then yeah. it makes sense for more. They got their story them. straight. <laughs> don't tell them that Mikel Arteta dressed up as Mickey Mouse to cheer us all up. Yeah, just say we stayed calm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's an image that's just etched yeah. in my brain right now. Don't worry, boys. <laughs> I am not upset. I love you all. whatever we do whatever bt ask us just say we stayed calm yeah sorry about this boys i believe in you (laughs) well it worked thank goodness for mickey arteta it absolutely worked um you mentioned the goal scorers (laughs) um the the front three all getting on the score sheet i think is quite telling Let's go through them, you know, one, two, three, um, but with a little more focus on the three because I think there's a bit more discussion to be had about uh, Eddie and Kedia mm-hmm. and, and his goal and the significance of his goal. But Bakayo Saka, um, I mean, Martin Odegaard, I think we'll talk about too, no doubt, but perfecting the crap shot assist. Incredible. Unbelievable. His, like his fiesta resistance. I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of joking, obviously, but at the same time, he does everything else so well that, like, if you know, afterwards he came out and said, "Yeah, we've been practicing that in training," uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past him. Um, I think it was yeah, just Sam Dean of the Telegraph was sat in front of me and he, he span round and he said, "Do you think he meant that?" And I was like, "No." And he goes, "The thing is, if it was any other player, I'd say there's no chance." Yeah, but. With Odegaard, you just can never quite be sure. No, no, no. The the technical level is absolutely off the chart. Um, and we saw that more than once last night. But I think the the first touch from Bukayo Saka is superb. Just Incredible. superb. Just cushions it brilliantly. And I thought the composure of the finish as well. Actually, his two finishes in the game, the, mm. the offside goal that was disallowed early on when he just nicked it with his heel were really promising. And he comes off the back of a World Cup where he's been in good goal-scoring form, finishing his chances well. And, yeah, took this one beautifully. And yet again, he um, yeah, he steps up when required. I thought it was a brilliant take from Saka. Yeah, super goal, super goal. And, like, uh, you know, he deserved it as well because there are other players maybe who, who got plaudits and, you know, rightly so, but... I think just consistently he was he was on it from the start. You know, the, the, the goal that he scored that was disallowed. I think he gave Cresswell, uh, you know, a lot of problems all game. Cresswell, quite how he didn't get any talking to from the referee for trying to take uh, Saka's shirt off his back more than once, I, I don't quite know. But uh, I think we realize now that, you know, it's it's quite legal to do whatever you want to Bakayo Saka on a football pitch. Um which is not good for us or him, but um, the opposition seemed to be emboldened by that on a on a consistent basis. So, uh, great goal from him. Also, the uh, he was involved in the second goal as well, winning yes. the ball back. Was it? No, was that for the Eddie? Oh, and I'm going to check goal? that. You know, because uh, the the way Arsenal won the ball back 
for both goals mm. was was both these beginning goals was quite significant. I've got a feeling the first one <clears throat> was the one where Thomas Partey gave the ball away in midfield. I'm just checking now. So Partey has the ball. Yes, the ball is intercepted and Partey chased back and produced a really good sliding tackle. Do you remember that? Near oh, the that was on... Rice, and Rice, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, yeah, and yeah, Arsenal went that. and scored. You know, the ball went to White, then to Odegaard and uh, and then to Saka and that was the goal. So I really liked that in terms of the recovery. And then the second one, I think, yeah, was Saka uh Basically, yeah, he, he, he barges uh, Declan Rice out of the way, plays it to Odegaard, Odegaard to Shaka, Shaka to Martinelli, and then the, the finish at the near post. Um, Hopefully we've taken about 50 million off Declan Rice's price tag and we can buy him now. Um, <laughs> Seen quite a but, few people mention that, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did they? Yeah, well, yeah, Saka did really well, showed real strength. And of course, you know, once the ball gets to Granite Shaka in and around the penalty area... Oh, it's a you goal. Know, you know it's a goal. We know what's coming. A, uh, and he plays it to Martinelli... And I don't know, you know, the camera did that thing where it immediately went to the goalkeeper, um, which I understand. But I think Martinelli deserves some credit for mm-hmm. that finish as well. I think I think that, you know, there is this rule, goalkeepers should never concede at their near post. And I, he- I heard Aaron Ramsdale talk about it once. It was quite interesting. I think with, with the fact that goalkeepers are expected to sort of effectively cover their six-yard box as well and be a, be alive to the cross, I think there is opportunity there if you hit the ball early and hard enough. And Martinelli really does. I think that's a really smart finish from him. I agree. I wrote about this in the blog today where when a goal like that goes in, there's always focus on the goalkeeper because of this sort of, oh, you should never get beaten at your near yeah. post. Even though goalkeepers get beaten at their near post quite regularly. Because, you know, it's a fairly big fucking space to cover. So you have to leave a little bit of a gap if you're going to cover the wider part of the goal. Yeah. And um, you're covering the cross in those situations. Yeah. That's the main thing, you know. You're, you're thinking, what if I have to dive out and, and stop this? So, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think, but, you know, uh, Jota did it to, to Ramsdale and mm. uh, to an extent Madison as well. But I thought the, the way Martinelli got this out of his feet and hit it was brilliant. Yep. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's my bias my per- perspective on this is that I I think Martinelli deserves more credit than the goalkeeper deserves criticism. And mm. I realise that if there are any West Ham fans listening to this, they're probably in complete disagreement and feel exactly the opposite. But that's just... That's fine. That's fine. I think it's a really smart finish with very little backlift in almost the perfect place for it to cause the goalkeeper a a problem. I think there's a precision and a power to the shot, which deserves more credit than for people to just go, well, that's terrible goalkeeping. He should never get beaten there. It doesn't give the shot uh, and Martinelli uh, enough credit for what I think is an excellent finish. I agree with that. And off his weaker foot as well. Yeah. So that's a real weapon. If If he can develop that, ability to go on the outside and use his left foot. We've seen Saka benefit from that on the other side, using his right from time to time. Um, that's going to elevate Martinelli to another level. And, and and those goals coming five minutes apart, you know, the stadium, which had been pretty noisy, as you'd expect anyway, for a Boxing Day evening game. Mm. It was rocking at that point. Um, scoring goals in quick succession is something we do quite frequently, isn't it? 
Um, so yeah, to do that again, to come from behind, to get the two goals from the two wide players, you know, have been so important this season, um, is fantastic. But then to get the third goal from Eddie and Ketia. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to play it back here again because the goal of the night, I think, you know, again, came from Saka winning the ball back. Yeah. Uh, fair play to him, but just a brilliant, brilliant move. I thought. Yeah, I mean the the little touch from Ben White. Um, yeah, outrageous that was. I thought. Yeah, but it just it was just so simple, wasn't it? He made it. Yeah, look, he made it look so simple. Um, the pass from Odegaard. Did you happen to see the uh, match of the day last night? Yeah, I thought what Dion Dublin said was really, really interesting. About, Remind me, what did Dion Dublin so say? Dion Sometimes Dublin, I tune out when I, I sort of... Uh, yeah, because it was about two and a half minutes of Alan Shearer before that. So, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, I had it's, to wake myself up. Yeah. Um, but basically what he said was he, he replayed it and he said, look at the way Eddie Nketiah uses his arms. Oh, this was brilliant punditry. Yeah, so he puts yeah. his arm out one way and then puts his arm out the other way to feel where the defender is and then spins, you know, as the defender goes around to... Uh, I guess it would be Eddie's right-hand side. He then spins uh, to his left and turns him and, and shoots into the bottom corner. But mm. I'd never really thought about that before. You know, you see players um, using their arms, obviously, because you need your arms to stay balanced and to hold off defenders and everything else. But the idea that in that instant, he was using his arms to gauge the position of the player so he knew how to turn and which way to turn, uh, that had never occurred to me in my life. Uh, yeah, it's one of those sort of technical aspects yeah. of centre-forward play that, you know, only really someone who's played the game at a high level and been properly coached is going to understand. But the way, he, yeah, he used his body, the way he felt for the player, the way he sort of shifted into one side, then spanned the other, it was ingenious. And what you remember is he's probably doing that all game and not eight out of ten times doesn't even get the ball in that mm. position. Um, it's sort of an, an ongoing battle across the 90 minutes. But yeah, this was textbook stuff and a really, really, really well-taken goal. And I was so pleased for him because, as I say, the weight of narrative over this game was significant. And even at half-time, you know, scrolling through social media, so many people were jumping on the you know, Eddie's not up to it. We miss Gabriel Jesus' bandwagon. And, and I'm not saying that he's as good as Gabriel Jesus, and I don't doubt we will miss him. But I think it was a very timely reminder of the ability Eddie does have, and I think mm. it will do him the world of good. Yeah, I think it's a huge goal for him. It's a huge goal for him because, let's face it, he'll view this as an opportunity because um, if Gabriel Jesus is fit, he doesn't start. He knows that. We saw pictures of Gabriel Jesus before the game standing pitch side with his leg in a full brace, basically, yeah. which doesn't suggest he's going to be, you know, making a surprise return against Brighton. That's for sure, right? <laughs> so we're, we're going to need Eddie. And I think what perhaps we need to do, or I can't tell anyone else what to do as a fan base, but I do think that if everything Eddie and Kedia does is viewed through the prism of what Gabriel Jesus would have done in that situation, then people are going to go mad. You know what I mean? Can I make a suggestion, though? In that situation, Gabriel Jesus probably would have put it over the bar. 
Well, I maybe, mean, maybe, you he, know. He hasn't scored for 11 games. Well, so sure, yeah, yeah. Let's look, give Eddie some props when he does put it in. No, no, that's it. But I just mean that maybe we have to view Eddie on his own merits. And I think part of why there is uh, an anxiousness, and I understand why, like I'm not stupid or anything like that. I get why some people will remain unconvinced by Eddie and Ketty at this point, right? I completely get it. But I think part of it is also that Eddie is all all that we've got too. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, the bench, the bench. Yeah. You know, if we'd got into the latter stage of the game, needing to find something in terms of attacking options on the bench, we were very like, you know, Coach yeah. Dubry was called up. So, yes, I understand. Listen, I do understand the concerns. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for him and for the team, I think it's a really, really big goal. A really big goal because it gives him that confidence boost. And look, you can look at the stats, and I think the stats are that he scored 11 goals in his last. 11 starts or something like that at the Emirates I can't remember Is it, uh, that's right 11 goals and 11 starts right yeah. but of course you know he's made more appearances than that so it's a kind of selective stat right but it's mm-hmm. a decent stat but in the uh, in the overall stats this season he's made X amount of appearances and this is his first uh, is this his first Premier League goal um, I would think so yeah so you know you can pick and choose the way that you present stats in a way but on the day when, like you say, there was so much talk about what are Arsenal going to do and what are Arsenal going to be without Gabriel Jesus, and the spotlight is very firmly on Eddie, he will have felt the pressure to score the goal that he did, which, you know, basically killed the game for us. West Ham gave up after that. At 3-1, they were just like, oh, fuck. Let's just go home, please. Um it gave us that cushion. It gave us that breathing room. You know, a 2-1 uh, a two-one lead, as we know, can be precarious. It only takes a second, something to go wrong, and you've dropped a couple of points. So it's a very important goal in the context of, of that game. Mm-hmm. But it's also a very important goal in the context of, of what Eddie is going to have to produce over the coming weeks and months. Like, we need this guy. We need him to be full of confidence. We need him to score goals. He's not going to be able to do everything Jesus does, but he can score us goals. And I think some of his all-round play yesterday was was pretty good as well. You know, mm. that there's, I think maybe a, not a rush, but maybe people are a bit too quick when a touch doesn't go quite right or a pass doesn't go quite right to sort of go, well, that, look, look, he can't do anything. You'd never do anything ever again. And you maybe need to just stop and judge a performance on the basis of 90 minutes. And I think over the course of 90 minutes, he had a very good game, scored a big goal, and hopefully, you know, this fills him with confidence and, and he can take it on from here. I Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that, really. And uh, as much as he, you know, he's he's not necessarily at the level of somebody like Gabriel Jesus who has played for Manchester City, played for Brazil, been a, you know, Premier League champion. Uh, of course, Eddie's not in that place mm. and, and at that level. But if you're thinking about strikers who, you know, who can offer you um, ability in tight spaces, a decent work rate, um, you know, football intelligence. I mean, he, as a type, as a type, I think he has more in common with Jesus than people perhaps imagine. Mm. And I, I'm not saying he does everything 
to the same degree or to the same standard. But in terms of like a backup and a, a replacement, you know, you've got to have a player. You're, you're going to have a player who's probably, you know, a second choice. I don't think he's a bad one. And I think uh, the, the bigger worry and maybe where some of the anxiety comes from, as you suggest, is depth. the absence of alternatives and depth. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's something the club are surely aware of. Um, Seems like it, yeah. you know, judging by the moves that they've begun making in the transfer market. Yeah, well, look, you know, all, all, all Eddie can do on the opportunities that he's given is produce. You know, end product, strikers, um, maybe unfairly or otherwise, are, are judged, you know, primarily on the goals that they score. His first Premier League start of the season, his first Premier League goal of the season, and like I said, is a, is a big goal in the context of of this game. Um, Can I also say yeah. as well that, listen, Gabriel Jesus is a really important player for this team, and I think the fact that he was there at the ground um, is significant. You know, I think he's a leader in this group, and much like when Zinchenko's been absent and been very present and part of the group, and when Shaka was last season... I think they'll want to keep him involved. But it's not a one-man show. And no, no. the strength of this team is that it's not been a one-man show this season. And if you look at the spread of goals, you know, I think Martinelli, Saka and Odegaard are all level, I think, perhaps for the season so far on six. And then Jesus on five. You've got Martinelli and, uh, sorry, and Ketia and Shaka on four. This is a collective, and the fact that the three goals were scored by individual scorers, almost regardless of who they were, tells you something about this team. And it's kind of been like that all season. The threat is diverse. And, you know, it's not Harry Kane going down. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, we've got a team that hopefully, if we can keep the shape, the system, the style of play... There are other players who can step up and be match winners for us. So, yeah, I, I think there's no need to despair about Jesus' absence. Although I know, uh, don't get me wrong, I think he's arguably been our player of the season. So it is significant. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just think you have to maybe judge judge things on their own merits. And, you know, it's a case of so far so good for Eddie and yeah. quite what we do in terms of depth. We'll have to wait and see. The market's not open yet, but we know that there are some moves happening and we'll we'll maybe discuss those in part two. I'm sure there's a question or two about that in part two. Talk to me about Martin Odegaard. Um, wow. I mean, there must have been people in Madrid watching that going, fuck, what did, what did we do? What did we do that for? <laughs> um, I know. I mean, the, his development, like when he arrived on loan, which would have been about, what, two years ago, um, in January, right? He was the January loan signing. And I yeah. thought he was good, um, had a bit of an injury issue and didn't quite um, finish the season as well as, as uh, he had started it, um, you know, his loan spell had started. But I think he always showed more than enough to suggest that he was good enough to play for, for Arsenal and certainly good enough to play for an Arsenal team that were, in, you know, in the middle of two eighth-place finishes, right? Mm -hmm. Um but his development over the last 18 months has been just incredible. The responsibility, he's the manager's 
basically his eyes and ears on the field, isn't he? The, the, the tactical leader on the pitch. Last night's performance was the very epitome of leading by example. You know, the way he competed, the way he produced, um, the the fact that he c- uh, can produce these moments of incredible skill and quality, these these light feet, these dancing feet that just get him out of trouble and keep what we're doing going, you know, keep keep the moves ticking, keep the pressure on in the the opposition final third. I think he had five key passes, six shots, a couple of assists. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I think he's uh, he's an absolute joy to watch at the moment. I yeah, I I, th- I wrote about this a bit today, but I think amidst all the worry about Jesus, maybe it was overlooked that although we sent a player to the world cup and he got injured, mm. we had arguably just as an important player, our club captain and key playmaker who didn't go to the world cup mm. and who had, you know, a very focused, perfect preparation for this half of the season in Martin Odegaard. And he is a player who is arguably as every bit as good on and off the ball as a Gabriel Jesus. I, I think he could play at any level. And I'm saying this mm. increasingly of a number of players in this Arsenal team. They could play in any team in the world. And I think Odegaard is absolutely in that bracket. And actually, you know, the shape, the attacking shape of this team has been so much about Martinelli and Saka on the flanks and, and Odegaard and uh, Jesus and to an extent Shaka as well in those central areas. And I, th- I think yesterday showed that as long as we can keep Odegaard there we've got a fighting chance because he was sensational and I have to I almost burst out laughing because I asked Mikel Arteta <laughs> about <laughs> Odegaard's performance oh uh, yeah and uh, what they were chapel he gave it the chapeau with the accompanying mime of the tip of the cap uh, the raise of the hat and I was mm. like this is too much it's too good to be true but um <laughs> i think we can all come together in saying chapeau to martin odegaard for that performance there aren't many players in the premier league playing at, at that level at this point in time chapeau no it just i did laugh as well when i watched the press conference <laughs> last night i honestly had to keep trying to keep a straight face yeah, I, was yeah. like, I was immediately <laughs> thinking of like doing the podcast next time uh, no, it's 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 brilliant to see, and it's brilliant. You know, I think Arteta deserves credit for this as well. You know, we can talk about the player's own ability, and, and that's unquestionable. But, you know, players in this team are getting better mm-hmm. under Mikel Arteta and under his coaching. And that's maybe not something that you would have said 18 months ago, where if you were looking at players, you're going... Mm. You know, where where is it where is it coming from? Where is it going to go? And, you know, across the board, you know, when, when you think about, you know, Ben White, amazing, by the way, last oh, night again. Brilliant last Just, night. there was one bit where he had the ball and he came in from the right-hand side and it was into midfield and there was a West Ham guy basically all over the back of him. And he just kept yeah. running until the referee had no choice but to give him a foul. But you just you knew he was just loving that, 
just I'll just run here and he's not going to get near the ball he's just going to keep fouling me and we'll get a free kick in the end you know I thought he was I thought he was sensational but he looks more and more comfortable doesn't he as well like, like in that right back position on the ball I think he's yeah. trying more and more things now um so that's really exciting yeah he was yeah. great you know so white um Shaka Partey Martinelli Saka Odegaard you know even Eddie Nketiah, I think you would have to say over the last 12, 18 months, is a different player than he was before that. There are more strings to his bow. You know, I think he's a more rounded forward than he was. Uh, I think he's going to primarily be a, a penalty box player, but I do think that, that what he does outside the box is better. And mm-hmm. the manager deserves credit for for the continued development of these players. And I uh, did you watch the interview with Thierry Henry? No, I've not seen that yet. Right, I'll send it to you after. Um, but basically, paraphrasing um, Arteta, he said, oh, yeah, that was good. It was really good to win. Um, you know, some good performances. But he said, you know, now I start thinking about the next game and how we can be better. And he said, there's still lots of room for improvement collectively and individually with this team. And I think he means both in terms of how we augment the squad, but also the player development aspect of things, which is, you know, which is a really key part of where we are, where we are. It's not just transfer market. It's the fact that the players we brought in and the players that we've developed through the academy are, are getting better uh, under this manager and in this system and in this team, you know. The, the collective is helping to improve the individual and vice versa. Yeah, definitely. I, I, like I said, you know, three years pretty much to the day since Arteta's first game. Um, it's been not always a, a sort of straight line of progression, but where we are at this point in time is mm. fantastic. And just to come back to Odegaard briefly, you know, as much as I would laud his, his ability and all those other things, I think another area where Arteta's got it really right was in his handling of the captaincy and yeah. giving it to Odegaard. And, and, and not just giving Odegaard the captaincy, but the the kind of team he built around him in terms of, you know, adding Jesus to the leadership group, reinstating Shaka, how Emery dealt with the armband mm. was arguably a big part of his undoing. And Arteta, at this point in time, looks to have got it very much right. For sure, for sure. So look, seven points clear of Newcastle uh, in second place. You just keep keep coming. Well, to be fair, Newcastle could have sent out Alan Shearer and Peter Beardsley and Gaza to play Leicester yesterday. I watched it and Leicester were just fucking, just pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. You know, Newcastle are obviously going very well, uh, but fuck me. Uh, You know, I think we could have put out an arse blog 11 to take on Leicester and we might might have won that game. They were just shite. Um, But eight points clear of Manchester City who then play on, on Wednesday. They're playing against Leeds. So, you can't ask for more than we got last night, really. We wanted three points. We wanted to show that we can pick up where we left off. That's exactly what we did. So, Yeah, and, and for those who are still looking further down the table than that, we are uh, 14 points clear of fifth place. Um, so, yeah, a, a really good result. And I guess it's over to Manchester City. Yes, let's see what they can do. 
Let's see what they can do. Uh, probably win about 5 nil. Yeah, probably. scoring six somehow. But, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them. All right. We have still plenty of stuff to talk about in part two because there's transfer issues and there was obviously another uh, nice little sidebar to, uh, to the win yesterday and that was the uh, return of Arsene Wenger. But we will deal with that in part two. So we'll uh, take a little break here, come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog. Also on the ArsBlog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon, um, where I think we'll take the first question from. Um, it comes from Tim, mm. who says, uh, what role, if any, would you like to see Arsene Wenger take at the club moving forward? I would love to see him come back to help with the academy from time to time. And this is obviously in light of Arsene's return, which was kept under wraps, um, from the players, it seems. Uh, a lot of work must have gone on in the background uh, to make this happen because I think we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And we were both slightly um, dubious that it was going to happen anytime soon. I wouldn't have put money on it. No, no neither would I. Um, and, and quite interesting as well that, you know, he was there, so was Stan, so was Josh. Yeah all milling around the they're sitting in different sections of the director's box but the director's box you know as a place you know everyone's sort of in the in the same um relatively small room uh whining and dining bef before the game so before i ask you or maybe get you to answer the question that i asked um do you think there has been a thawing of relationships behind the scenes <sighs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's a significant step for Arsene to come back. Mm. Um, I have to be honest and say, <laughs> I saw the suggestion made and I did wonder, that there's a cynical part of me um, that wonders if, you know, off the back of the World Cup, if uh, this was quite a smart move for Arsene at a time when his reputation had maybe taken a bit of a battering. Um due to his association with FIFA and, and Qatar, if this, someone might put an arm around him and said, 
you know, to win you back a lot of favour quite easily, turn up at Arsenal. Um, mm. maybe, 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 not, maybe not. I don't know. I, the thought occurred across my mind simply because there's so much uh, baggage around this relationship at this point in time mm. that I didn't see this uh, reconciliation coming quite so quickly. And yeah. who knows? We don't know if our t- if our, if Arsene mingled with Stan and Josh. But a lot of the people he had grievances with, I think with the exception of the owners, have moved on. It's a very different Arsenal now. Mm-hmm. And also, maybe it doesn't matter. You know, like even if he, if things are a sort of, at best cordial between him and the ownership, it still was great to have him there. Don't sure. get me wrong. And, and and I think, you know, someone at the club said to me, our doors are always open to us. You know, he's he's part of the club and always will be. And um, it was a very touching moment to sort of hear his name sung and see him acknowledge it. And it felt like it had been a, a long time coming. Yeah, I think overdue, you know, it really was. And I, the circumstances, I think we can all understand this was a very difficult breakup after uh-huh. such a long period of time. There a messy are, divorce, for yeah, sure. Yeah, a messy divorce. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, Like, I don't think Arson and Stan and Josh are going to be BFFs or anything like that. But as you said, if there's a cordial relationship then that's good enough, isn't it? Where, you know, over time, maybe those fences can be mended a little bit more. Like, I don't know that he's ever going to be um, desperate to uh, to be friends with Stan or Josh or whatever it is. But I think what 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 is important is his relationship with the club itself, with the institution rather than the owners. Because, you know, what he did during his time with us was, was remarkable in many ways. Um I mean, it is. it was still a surprise because I spoke to somebody only a few weeks ago who, you know, left me think that, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. Yeah. You know? I don't know if this thing is ever going to be broken down. It's one of those where, you know, if you don't talk to someone for a while, then it becomes really awkward and that just becomes easier not to think about it and just well, let that relationship. It's such a big thing yeah. to get over that hump that it almost puts pressure on it, you know? Yeah. And it would have put pressure on it last night. I mean, if Arsenal had not won last night, there would have been a lot of intros to pieces about how this was an unfortunate... Wenger out! Wenger yeah, well, out! Yeah. <laughs> a team dominant in possession, undone by a mistake at the back. You uh, know, yeah, the headlines yeah. would have written themselves. Um. And I think it, just to move away from Arsenal for a second, I I do think it speaks to the enormous confidence Mikel Arteta feels in his position, how Mm. open and welcoming and upfront he's been about his desire to have Arsenal at the ground. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he's been consistent about that. And, you know, just to sort of go back to the question about what sort of role he might have, I'm not sure that... There needs to be a formal role per se, does there? There doesn't have to be. No. Um, you know, I saw a lot of people talking about the statue or name a stand after him or, or whatever it might be. But I don't know that there needs to be a formal role. He's got his job at FIFA. He's obviously um, quite committed to that. Um, I just think the fact that the door is open again 
and the fact that, you know, he might've got to meet Bukayo Saka for the first time and that the relationship between a former manager who did incredible things during his time at the club and the current iteration of the club. I mean, it's a, it's a former invincible is the, is the technical director. Um, it's his former captain is his, uh, is the manager of the club right now. It's one of his former captains who is the head of the academy right now. So his, his influence continues. And I think these guys have been very cognizant about wanting to maintain that relationship rather than just cut something off. So I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic. The song, uh, to hear people singing his name was, was great. Um, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to not to realize just how special that was after all that time you know that's um 2018 was the last time he was there you know so we're heading up on 5 years i think 5 years is more than enough time for the most acute difficulty and pain of of that breakup that messy divorce to to sort of settle down and uh, you know i'm glad to see it and you know if he can come back if he can watch games if he can feel part of a club that that obviously he has huge affection for um then i think that's great for him you know i really do i think it's a shame that the way it ended left him so i don't want to say bitter because that's me speaking on his behalf but but, you know, where he felt he couldn't come back, I think that that was always really sad. And um, if it gets better from here, then great. I think you're right about that. But I do think that in some ways, um, I don't want to use language that's too loaded, but I do think that whenever Arson left, it was going to be a huge wrench sure. for him. And there was an extent to which, uh, you know, his job at Arsenal was almost, he spoke about it like an addiction and he kind of needed to go cold turkey really to achieve that separation and that distance. Um, but I I think the outcome I hope for is that he comes back. That That's really it, you know. I, I don't think I want him, you know, immediately pointed to the board or, you know, anything like that. I think if he comes back and he feels that he can come and go at Arsenal and be appreciated and speak to people and be close to the club again, I think that would be a great mm. starting point and a yeah. great uh, outcome really. So yeah. let's hope this, let's hope it's not another five years, you know, before we see him again. For sure. For sure. And he's obviously a good luck charm as well. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, shall we have another? Have you got a question about about Mudrick? I do have a number of questions Go about uh, Mudrick. Um, here's one from <laughs> Odegaard Scrokeguard. Yeah. Um. Wow. Wow. eBay that. Yeah. He says, "Have you ever seen a player broadcast? They want Arsenal to sign them more than Mudrick." And Daniel Rafat says, Good morning, guys. Hope you both enjoyed Christmas. Just wondering if you had any thoughts as to why the Mudrick links have been so much more public than any of our other recent transfers. Does this make it less likely to go through or does it help our chances? Listen, I said a few weeks ago that this transfer reminded me of another January transfer when Arsenal signed Andre Arshavin from Zenit St. Petersburg. Mm. And for me, those parallels uh, seem to grow all the time. 
Uh, I am not surprised that this is being played quite publicly, particularly from the player's side and to an extent from the Shakhtar side. Uh, and I think it will continue in those terms. I mean, for those who don't know, basically news came out in the Ukraine and later in the UK of uh, a bid for uh, Mudrik from Arsenal. Mm. My, my understanding is an initial €40 million Euros with about 25 uh, payable in add-ons. Um, the player himself <laughs> uploaded to his Instagram during the game, showing that he was watching the Arsenal match. And if you've caught any of the interview he did with uh, Alexander Zinchenko's wife, you'll know he's not exactly keeping it a secret about his January intentions and his desire to, sure. to North London. I, I, I think that um, this is basically a consequence of a situation where Shakhtar have got a very valuable asset and a player who really wants to leave Arsenal are, at this point in time, by far the best option available to him and probably to Shakhtar in terms of the kind of budget we might have. Um, who would not want to come to Arsenal at this time, to mm. be fair? And, you know, Shakhtar are going to do what everything they can to maximise their profit on a, a very promising young player. Um you know, and and so I, I does. I think it helps us or hurts us. I guess I think it helps. I think generally the will of the player is quite a determining factor in any transfer, and his is very clear. Mm. Um, the only thing you've got to be careful of is, you know, you don't get gakpoed, if you will. Um, yeah. You look at that situation. Manchester United were very much monitoring Gakpo, having a look at him. There was a bit of uncertainty about is he a winger, is he a centre forward. Liverpool swept in and got a deal done before the windows even open. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that I think that's going to be the interesting thing. I think Arsenal love this player and think he would be a fantastic addition. It's just where do you draw the line? And to give the club some credit, I don't think they've gone in and low balled Shakhtar particularly with that opening op offer. I think that's an opening offer that says. We're very, very serious about this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We had this discussion a couple of weeks ago where you know there was a 25 million euro offer accepted by Shakhtar in the summer. So how much more has his value increased based on his performances this season? Another 15 million euros plus potentially 20 million euros in add-ons seems absolutely uh, generous nearly to me. Um I know that they're holding out for a lot more. I think you've said that the the fee that Manchester United paid for um, Anthony, Anthony is... Yeah, that's is, been is, cited. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, you know, um, I don't think it really should have that, that much of an impact. I think you just need to judge the player based on, on their own valuation of him six months ago and, you know, where that might be now. To be fair, I don't know for sure that they accepted 25 million because at the end of the window, Brentford were going in with 30 oh, and right, okay. being told that's not enough. So I think I think in the summer, maybe at about 40, you would have had a deal Yeah, from what I know. But, you know, like I say, a total offer of 65 million euros, it's a very serious offer for a young player who, you know, we're still talking about potential, really. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd like to think a compromise could be reached. I mean, the noises coming out of Shakhtar are saying, 
well, you know, if you get to 80 or 90 at this point in time, we might be able to do a deal quite quickly. Mm. I don't see Arsenal going to that level, to no, be honest with you. No, I don't think so. I don't think they should either. No. Um, Probably helped to ransom, like you know, and, and, and they've shown that they won't be, I think, yeah. in previous windows. So, you know, that, that kind of figure, I don't think it's coincidence that the kind of figure they've gone in with is sort of similar to what was being talked about for Rafinha yeah. in the summer. Um, and I think if they can compromise somewhere between Shakhtar's expectations and where we are now, we could have a deal. But I don't have great optimism of it being done quickly just because I mm. think Shakhtar will try and squeeze us for everything they can. Well, let's see. I mean, is the, the interest is obviously clear. We've made the bid. We want the player. You know, it's now about where, whether we can get the player. Let me just ask you a follow-up one um, from Twitter, from Ad Rudd, who's at King Rudder, who says, do you think splashing the cash on Mudrick is the way to go? With Emil Smith-Rowe coming back, we appear to be okay on the left side of our attack where he predominantly plays. Should we be looking at a right wing, a right winger who can support Saka? Um, mm. I mean, one thing that occurs to me is that while Mudrick has primarily played on the left-hand side, Mikel Arteta does like a left-footed player on the right. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that in their scheming, in their planning for Mudrik, it's not just like, well, how do we get him in the team ahead of Martinelli? How do we get him in the team ahead of Smith-Rowe? Maybe they're viewing him as somebody who can also cover on the, the right-hand side. I mean, I'm speculating, but it's not beyond the realms of possibility that a player with his left foot and his uh, ability could be repurposed in this Arsenal team under Mikel Arteta? Well, sorry to slightly tread on that, Andrew, but okay. as, as far as I know, Mudrich's preferred foot is his right. Oh, is it? Yeah, I think so. I think he's pretty two-footed, but I think he's I predominantly right-footed. I thought I, uh, I thought he was left-footed. Anyway. Well, I, I, listen, I, I may be wrong, but that's based on what I've uh, seen and heard. But... Yeah, right. He's a right foot guy, according to Transfer Marked. So, which does make the question very valid. I think you know we've got Martinelli in that position. Smith Rowe, I think, ostensibly is seen in that position. Um, you know, even we've seen Gabriel Jesus and Eddie Nketiah, I think, drift out and play on that left hand side a couple of times this season. Um, but I think your point still stands in that I, I look at Mudrik and I do think he's someone who could come on on either flank and have an impact. And I think, mm. you know, the best wide players, that's probably true for. You know, Saka ended the game playing on the left yesterday and I don't doubt he could do a good job in that position. I think he's someone who brings variety and threat. The, the one player it does raise interesting questions for, if it happens, is Emil Smith-Rowe, I think, mm. because... Immediately, Martinelli and Madrid, they're sort of of a type, you know. They're players who, who like dribbling and, and uh, they're goal scorers. I mean, I know Smith, I know, so so Smith Rowe, but I just think he probably would be third in line for that particular position. And so, what would that mean for him? Would it mean getting more minutes in other areas? I mean, with England's youth teams, he played on the right a quite a great deal, mm-hmm. Emil Smith Rowe. And I even remember him doing that under Rune Emery in the first team, playing for the right-hand side. So it might be that he shifts over and gets more minutes in that area or, or in central areas. But yeah, it, it is. Um, it does feel one where this is about the player and the talent 
uh, as much as it's about the position. You know, it's a, it's a question of adding depth and quality to our front line mm. without necessarily specificity of like, it's got to be a left winger, it's got to be a right winger. Yeah, because there is, you know, obviously the the issue of depth that we spoke about when we were talking about Eddie in, in the first half. Mm. And, you know, whether or not the club need to look for some kind of striker or some other kind of forward option. And we've spoken about Smith Rowe maybe coming back and playing false nine, Martinelli moving central. You do have a bit more scope to do that if you have a player like Mudrik in the squad as well, though, isn't it? I mean, it it just seems unlikely to me that a number nine of some description or an out-and-out centre-forward is going to be arriving in January. Yeah, yeah, I said this in uh, a piece the other day, but I th- I don't, uh, from what I hear, that's not really on the agenda at this point in time mm. to sign a, a number nine, as we would term it. Um, I think I think if they can get somebody like Mudrick, that would probably be our, be our lot. Um, mm. But, you know, it, Liverpool, I think... A, I hope the Gakpo price tag, which I think tops out at about 50 million euros, I hope that puts some realism and perspective into the market, uh, you know, as a kind of contrast to the Anthony price. Yes, that's um, a good point, actually. And I yeah. also think the efficiency with which Liverpool have done that deal is uh, something Arsenal should look at and uh, try to emulate, as try as hard they can. I don't doubt they'll be working hard. I mean, the fact they've put in this offer in at this point in time shows there is an urgency. They don't want to wait. They want to get it done. But I just think Shakhtar, it's going to be a tricky negotiation. But he's a player I'm really, really excited about. I mean, how can you not be Mm. just watching? I remember the first time I saw him play, really, and took any notice of him, was against Scotland in the playoffs for, I guess, would it it have been the World Cup? Uh, I presume so, yeah. Uh, or maybe the Euros, I forget. Anyway, the playoffs to qualify for some sort of international tournament and he played for Ukraine um, last summer, it was. Mm. So it would have been the World Cup. And he was, you know, electrifying and uh, I'd love to see him in an Arsenal shirt, kind of wherever he ends up playing. And I I am curious about Martinelli because he does seem to have all the ingredients to be a nine, but he's thriving so much on the left-hand side, you wouldn't really be desperate to move him. But equally... You know, if I think about Arteta and I think about his teams, you know, a lot of the time, certainly certainly when Lacazette was playing, you know, he was the first substitution. And the centre-forward, I think in most teams, is a guy who, if you're winning the game, will get a rest. But when you look at our options, there, you know, last night, for example, there wasn't anyone you could really bring Eddie and Ketia off and have any confidence they could play in that position. So it's That's interesting. It. That's it, isn't it? You know, that... Um a kick or a hamstring or a suspension mm. or something. And it does require a hell of a rethink in terms of how you set your team up and, and who plays where. So uh, I guess that also plays into the urgency with which they want this Mudrick deal done. You know, Arteta spoke during the week, didn't he, about let's get things done quickly. Yeah, uh, He said, ideally, that's the way you do it, but you've got to be realistic that maybe it doesn't always happen that way. But, you know, there are big games coming up in January, you know, obviously nothing can happen before then, but um, there are some very big games where a little extra depth and a little extra ability to change a game from the bench would be very useful. So, 
Yeah, I'd really like to see Emma Smith Rowe back yeah. in the squad. You know, I I was really optimistic that he'd be fit for the start of this period, and obviously, I don't want them to take any chances with him. But the sooner he's back, I, I'll feel a lot better about the state of our bench. I imagine. Mm. Okay. Um, here's a question from Sportnut100. Uh, and they say, does anyone else notice the tactic of knocking balls into our left channel, targeting Gabriel? He comes out to win headers and then it's immediately knocked in behind again. Mm. Gabriel tends to get stranded in midfield. I did notice this a bit last night, actually, where um, I think it was their, the the move for their penalty where he came and won a header won and, a and header was and caught was a little upfield. bit high up the pitch. And I noticed as well that they're, like he's usually very, very good in the air. But there were three or four times where he misjudged the the flight of the ball or the header and it bounced behind him or he didn't quite get there or he did get caught ahead of the ball. I don't know if it's a tactic per se. And again, this could be just down to the little bit of rustiness not playing a great deal in the in the last um you know, six weeks or so. But I did notice last night that he was just not quite as assured as he usually is from an aerial perspective. You know, he's very dominant. Um, mm. He wins those headers. Could just be smart centre forward play from Michel Antonio, who's a big guy and hooshed him out of the way a few times. I'm not quite sure. But I did, yeah, I did spot that a couple of times. Whether it's a tactic that, um, you know, was deliberate from David Moyes, I'm not 100%, not 100% sure. Well, I wonder as well, you know, Gabriel's got quite a tough task in that channel because is it as much about our left back as it is about our left centre back in terms of the positions they occupy on the pitch mm. and, you know, the gap they often leave in that wide channel? I think it's inevitable we're going to see teams look to target that. And we've seen that all season long, really, you know, diagonals into that area or balls down the line into that area. Mm. I think Gabriel's asked to cover a lot of ground. Um and, you know, his impetus is to go and win the ball early. That's the kind of defender he is and can lead to him being caught out. I remember at Sales Park last season, there was a really obvious example of that a little bit last night as well. Um, but equally, I remember moves that we had in the game, attacking moves, which came from, you know, Gabriel being uh, a bit impetuous and, and stepping up and winning the ball and starting the counter-attack. So... I'm a little bit more forgiving of him just because mm. I think he's got a very difficult job in that sort of back three. You know, I think he does a lot of work um, making sure that Zinchenko or Tierney, whoever it is, is able to occupy higher, higher and more central spaces. Um, but I think it's going to be a theme of how teams play against us looking to exploit that channel. And I guess West Ham, you know, in, in the instant for their penalty, they managed to do that successfully. Yeah. Yeah, uh, interesting and good to see Zinchenko back as well, though, and to get some yeah. minutes. So so that's good. The more bodies we have, the better. Here's a couple on this particular issue. One from Niels August, who's at Niels August on Twitter. He said, why do you think Arteta waited so long with the subs? El Nenny in with 30 seconds left. Why not rest someone like Thomas Partey when the game is dead anyways? And... Um, Shivam Naman Sinha, who's at Shivam underscore N underscore underscore Sinha, said, uh, should the subs have come on earlier to change the direction of the game, especially when we were trailing? I'm um, not sure about that, really, because, you know, we did get back into it fairly early in the second half. But then he says, what does that say about Vieira's performance during the World Cup break? Mm, 
It's it's Arteta's tendency, isn't it? He's mm. not someone. You know, if he sees something really wrong, he will change it. By and large, if he's got a first eleven performing, he doesn't feel the need to disrupt it too much. And and I would imagine that's informed by sports science as well. I mean, these guys, you know, will have all the information they require on a player's conditioning. Um, it's interesting the Vieira one, the Partey one. I think is just a case of literally just putting him in cotton wool for those last few minutes. Yeah, maybe that could have happened a little bit earlier. I, I accept that. Um, but he's such an important player to Arsenal's control of a mm. game that there is a value in leaving him on. The Vieira one is really interesting because when you when we were trailing and you were looking at the bench, there was Zinchenko and there was Vieira and they were kind of the players who you thought, well, that's sort of what we can go to, you know, if we need something here. And I did wonder, you know, could this be a big moment for Vieira if he was to, if we were to sort of need him coming on in the second half? Um, as it turned out, the guys selected to start the game did the business. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think it says a great deal about his performances. I think his performances were pretty promising, weren't they? By and large, in the break, mm. he did quite well in the friendlies. Yeah, I think he did fine. I think it was just a case yesterday of the team playing well, being fully in control of the game, and he didn't really feel the need to to change anything. Yeah. Um, and, and as well, having already spoken about the importance of match fitness and, and all that kind of stuff, this was a very... Um, this is our first match back to get competitive minutes into the legs of, of some of these guys. So I think that probably played into it a bit as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we talked about this a bit in part one, uh, but I am interested in it as a question. Gabriel Jesus said, not not the striker, he's at Philip Denstor on uh, right. Twitter. Uh, unless this is his burner account or something. Could be. He says, Morning, gents. Why do so many seem to not believe in Eddie Nketiah? He has many important qualities you want to see in your striker and has scored 11 in 11 starts at the Emirates. Still, it seems we doubt him more than any other player in the team. Why is that? And I know you said in part one, you sort of understand why. So I think it'd be good to kind of illustrate if you can. Well, I just think his career trajectory has been... It's been a bit weird and odd, you know, um, in that he's been on the cusp of our consciousness for quite a long time since he came on to score those goals against Norwich, right? Mm-hmm. And he's Five had years a, ago. Yeah, and he's, he's had a couple of loan spells and they haven't really gone brilliantly. And he's come back at Arsenal. He's been third choice and then second choice, and then, you know, it got to the point last season where Lacazette was so bad that there was no option other than to play Eddie Nketiah up front, and fair play to him, he, he took his chance. He was 23 years of age, he hasn't started a lot of fo- uh, football matches, you know, in the Premier League, no. been very much a cup player, Um, and I think that's what it is. You know, if you talk to people about Eddie, you would say... Look, he's a striker, he's a poacher, he can score goals, he can finish, but can he do the other stuff? Can he, you know, be part of the all-round play? I think he's showing that he's developing in that way. Um, but, but you know, he's also not a kid kid either. You know, he's 23. He's going to be 24 in, in May, I think it is. May, end of May, yeah. So I think the doubts come from 
just the career trajectory he's had, where there have been ups and downs and periods where he just hasn't been used, where despite what Mikel Arteta said about him, he hasn't always uh, shown a great deal of faith in him. Um, and then there have been moments when he has, and I think he's been rewarded for that. So it's just the, the peculiar spike of his career, to be honest. Um, and and I, I think as well, because of what we have grown used to in a very short period of time with Gabriel Jesus, we, we've all seen how much the team has benefited from that. And without it, you know, we worry that whoever was going to come in is going to struggle to replicate what, what Jesus brings the team. Um, that's so, definitely a big part of it, isn't it? It's yeah. the perceived and probably accurate disparity between uh, the quality of the two players. You know, Eddie suffers by that comparison. To be fair, most strikers would, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, um, I, the- I think as well there might be another... I, I'm sort of interested in this, but I think there's a kind of... Uh, a divergent... There are sort of two ways in which academy players are perceived. And there's one which is kind of like the Bukayo Saka effect where, you know, they break through very young and uh, we completely fall for them and think, you know, the world of them. And, and you know, in Saka's case, obviously that's backed up by performance, but I think there's a kind of degree of adulation that, that comes with being an academy player who, who makes that step young. And then I think there's kind of an another pathway, which is sort of... I'd sort of call it the Emmy Martinez <laughs> effect, which is kind of like where I think a player slightly suffers in terms of perception by virtue of the fact that they've sort of always been around. And mm. I think there is sort of a sometimes a lack of uh, appreciation or an assumption that, well, if they've been around and they haven't made the step, there must be a reason. But I think sometimes that player just, you know, happens to play in a position where it's particularly difficult to get those opportunities. And I think goalkeeper and, and centre-forward, I think, are, are arguably among those positions. Yeah, that's and, a good point. And I think the longer a player kind of hangs around, sometimes our perception of them diminishes. And I think sometimes we we don't look at them with the eyes that we might if they were elsewhere. You know, I'm not saying if Eddie Nketiah was at another club, we'd be clamouring to sign him, but we might be looking at his his you know youth international goal scoring record what he's done in cup competitions this recent run of goals at the Emirates stadium and thinking well i wonder how he could do with a bigger platform mm. and i think in a funny way sort of familiarity can breed if not contempt but a bit of kind of ennui um and i think eddie suffers from that slightly because his talent is really significant and i've I've always thought that Eddie will have a good career. And in some ways, I think he could probably have a better career than occasionally filling in for Gabriel Jesus. Um, but I, yeah, I, I'm really, I, I'm really pleased for him that he, that he's doing well. And, and in fairness to him, you know, he did very well in the last season too. So let's hope he can keep it up because there are much bigger tests ahead for him and for this team in the next few weeks. For sure. For sure. Um, I mean, there, there are players who are late bloomers yeah. as well. Players who don't really get going until they're, they're mid twenties. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, that's going to be Eddie or, or anything like it, but um, you know, I hope he, I hope he does well. Um, I think he has developed. I think he's worked hard. I think, 
I think we know as well that if Mikel Arteta doesn't fancy a player, if he doesn't really think he's got anything about him, then he doesn't, like, he doesn't talk about many players in the way that he talks about Eddie, right? No. I know some of that is public to sort of boost his confidence and, and everything else, but I also think he believes it. I also think he genuinely believes that that Eddie is, you know, capable of scoring a lot of goals at this level in this team. Uh, and I think Arteta's displayed a ruthlessness with the way he has built his squad. And if he felt that Eddie wasn't good enough and would never be good enough for this team, A, he wouldn't be playing him. B, they wouldn't have given him a, you know, a new contract. So while I still understand and, and maybe need to be convinced personally that he is going to be able to do it on a consistent basis in this Arsenal team. And look, fingers crossed, I hope he does. I, I also think you need to pay attention to when Mikel Arteta talks about him. Um, he's not just paying lip service to a guy. He's saying these things because um, he means them. Because if he didn't think Eddie was up for the job, he would get somebody else. I think that's really true. And, you know... <laughs> Mikel Arteta's talent identification abilities have received a lot of praise on this podcast and elsewhere. Mm. Um, and he's very, very committed to Eddie's uh, potential and has shown that in terms of the contract. Um, so I think we should probably take him at his word if we trust him. Yeah. I also liked, by the way, you know, inevitably Arteta was asked the question in the press conference yesterday of, you know, is this going to be good for Eddie's confidence? And the first thing he said was, well, he's a confident boy. And I do like that about Eddie. All goal scorers have to have that swagger and that belief. And mm -hmm. he's had that, you know, since his teens, this, this belief that he will get goals. And, and that can... That's a very important component for, for any striker to have. All right. Uh, here's one uh, from Alistair Wood, who's at Alleyboy82. He said, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. A question for James. He said, uh, we regularly see stories planted in the media saying Arsenal want a player, when in reality, we don't. Do clubs who weren't interested in that player suddenly decide to bid as they read that we want him? Does this kind of gaslighting actually work? I guess the archetypal player is linked with club, perhaps by, you know, an agent and a friendly journalist to create some copy and a back page story or, you know, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. um, you know, just to let people know that he's available and on the market. Um, I mean, does everyone not look at that and go, oh, we know what that is. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. And I, and, and I have to be honest and say that, um, the longer I'm kind of uh, uh, around transfer reporting, the more I'm convinced that doesn't happen that much. Like it does happen time to time where you think someone's just put two and two together or that's been a bum steer. But by and large, mm. I honestly believe that um, most transfer reporting that you would read, you know, in a publication, I don't just mean someone tweeting something out or something, but, you know... I think is reported in good faith. And I think the issue is that to an extent, all journalists are slightly feeling in the dark. They're feeding on scraps of information that they extrapolate. You know, it's very rare that you get all the detail on something. You might hear 
oh, they're looking at that player. And, you know, you, you're kind of, as long as you, you always look, well, you're always looking for two sources to give you confirmation that something is probably uh, likely to be true. But I, I think there's probably just a bit of, um, what's the word? Just, uh, you know, I, I think people make mistakes, essentially. I, I, I do think genuinely most reporting is done in good faith because I don't know why you would do that to your reputation. Some people um, don't care about their reputation or the publications that they work for don't really lend themselves to a reputation in the first place. True, that's true. And I guess we all take that with a pinch of salt. Mm. But I think most, you know, journalists, for example, on the Arsenal B or that you would sort of follow and think reputable for transfer news... If mistakes happen, I think they're genuinely mistakes. Do other clubs react to that? I mean, you've got to bear in mind that as much as we see a surface layer of transfer rumours, the clubs are all in direct contact with these people. So if you read um, Arsenal have bid 30 million for such and such a player and it's not true, mm. it's not very difficult for other clubs to ascertain that. They can call the club or they can call the player or they can call his agent. Um so I know I don't think it's particularly effective. I think, uh, yeah, I've been in a position where agents have said to me once or twice in my life, oh, you know, I, I, Arsenal are interested in this player. And I've sort of spoken to people who would know if that was true uh, and been told that's not correct. Mm. So that agent is probably just looking to, yeah, um, you know, raise the profile of his client. Um but in that situation, I wouldn't write it. Maybe there are others who are, who would, but I would not. Um, Again, that comes down to publication and what the what the criteria, uh, the are, threshold is for publishing yeah. something. Where you know the the need for something to perhaps be double sourced, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, copper bottomed, and you know, in our case, it's got to be double sourced. You've got to offer it to a right of reply for to all basically all involved parties the clubs um which is almost certainly going to be a no comment but you know you have to go through that process so very little gets published on mm. that that we you know haven't really done the checks on maybe other publications are different but um yeah in terms of does it manipulate the market i don't think it does really i think it, what it does it, it manipulates sentiment like i think it has a bigger impact on fans mm. than it does on at the actual football community. Because I sort of think actual football business is kind of running parallel and fairly separate to transfer rumours in the media because they've got way more information than, you know, sure. than us. So, but, but it's an interesting area. And one thing that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently is we focus so much on the relationship between player and club, but I think we as fans probably don't think enough and maybe as media probably don't think enough about the relationship between player and agent. And for example, in contract negotiations, you know, Arsenal are involved in a number of those at the present time. Arsenal are trying to keep the players, right? Mm -hmm. We know that. But the agent is trying to keep the player too. And the agent is always working. Like at the Premier League level, these players, you know, they could probably pick and choose any agent they want. And so the agent is always working to keep the player happy. And if that means, you know, holding out to get them the right contract, earning an extra few thousand pounds a week to prove that they're the right guy to represent them and thus get their commission, mm. 
they're going to do it. And if that means in some cases um, making it seem like there's a big market for that player and, you know, they're very much desired uh, and there might be a big windfall down the road, then maybe some mm. less scrupulous agents would, would take that path too in terms of how they'd handle media and transfer rumours. But yeah. I do think, yeah, it's something we don't talk about. We always talk about player, we always talk about club, but there are these people in the middle who have a, a very different agenda and that dynamic is a big part of any negotiation. And I, and I bet you as well, when Mudrick gets to, if it gets to, you know, personal terms, crunch stage, that will be a whole other uh, hurdle to be cleared in terms of that the agent's expectations and demands. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, this could be a, a not necessarily a once-in-a-lifetime deal for, you know, an agent who is primarily dealing with Ukrainian players. You know, this could be a big payday, no? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's... It's certainly a very interesting thing to consider. Um, but as we know, all agents are lovely people and they they, um, they operate in good faith at all times. So oh, we don't yeah. have to worry about Good it. guys, especially the ones who help me with stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, haven't got a bad word to say about that. No, no, no. Um, I think that's probably that, is it, for this, yeah, for this one? Yeah, I think we've covered it. I think we? we've covered everything. We've enjoyed the win. We're uh, top of the table. Can we just give a very quick shout-out Um Benjamin Mason on Twitter, is that Benjamin Mason 10, uh, tweeted us last night to say, I'm at Merry Arts in Cleveland, Ohio for Christmas, and they are playing Fuck Magpies Forever as a warm-up to the game today. <laughs> so I love the idea of that booming around a bar in Cleveland, Ohio, ahead of the Arsenal game, and everyone... Uh, taking umbrage with magpies. <laughs> Genuinely insane, but I love it. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Thank you. I'm Thank- glad that we eventually won the game, so it didn't prove to be a, a jinx. For, for sure. Thanks for letting us know that, Benjamin. Okay, we will leave it there. I don't know what day of the week it is, by the way, um, so I don't know what's coming, but there's more to come this week. I'm sure we'll figure it all out in podcast terms. For now, uh, enjoy the win, enjoy being top of the table, and we will catch you on the next one. Oh, and have a good New Year, guys, because I won't be back till the 1st of Jan. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, have, a, have a fun uh, New Year's Eve, and bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.